All right, well, good morning. Um, as you can see, we are back in our series on spiritual gifts this morning. And uh, I had a kind of a funny story talking about spiritual gifts and being served and the body helping, helping each other. Um, this morning, uh, I had a new experience. I ran out of gas the first time in my life. <clears throat> yeah. So, uh, pulled up on the side of the road about 6.45 in the morning uh, on my way to music practice at 7. And I have to call Mark, our piano player. I'm like, hey, can you pick me up? I ran out of gas. So Mark comes around, picks me up, and then, you know, I'm trying to think about how are we going to get this. I don't want to get towed. And uh, so kind of coming up with a plan. Well, Tim Boyer, he, like, goes, grabs a gas can, got one at the church. Braden, he jumps in, jumps in his car, goes, get, fills up the gas can, fills up my truck, comes back. Cody, the guitarist, jumps in the car and with Braden. They go get my truck, bring it back. I didn't even have to do anything. I was just here. My truck's back. So uh, it was a sweet... Um, sweet expression of love to me, so very thankful for that, even with my uh, lack of preparedness. Um, uh, obviously, I was distracted and ran out of gas this morning. But the funniest part of the story, and Hayden just told me this, <laughs> is that Pastor Brian has no idea, right? We're up there, and uh, apparently I was preoccupied thinking about some things during the pastoral prayer, but Pastor Brian bends down to pray, and he says, now, I know he's like, some of, some of you, you know, some of them, Lord, may have come with a full tank of gas this morning. <laughs> Metaphorically, of course. But uh, I did not come with a full tank of gas this morning. Um, but I'm glad to be here. Glad, glad I'm here and not still stranded on the side of the road. All right. I was completely free. All right. I had nothing to do with what we're talking about today. Um, and then I was on the side of the road and started speaking in tongues. So... <laughs> Just kidding. We are going to talk about tongues today, all right? Well, as you know, we've been in this series, and uh, it's been on spiritual gifts, and, and we were calling it Gifted for Growth, because that's really the idea. God has saved us, He's given us His Spirit, and His Spirit has equipped us with gifts to be used for the growth of the church. So we've been in this study, and um, we, we looked weeks ago at what a spiritual gift is, and as just by way of review, a spiritual gift is a specific God-given ability to build up the church. So what we've seen. It's an ability that God's given to us by His Spirit, and it's to be used for the edification of the body. Um, that's old news. We've, we looked at that. Um, a few weeks back, we began to dial in on the individual gifts. We started with the gift of apostleship, so you guys can remember that. And I'm not sure if that one got recorded or not, so if you missed it and you want to know, it's, it's pretty foundational, uh, no pun intended. Uh, it's a pretty, yeah, you guys will get that one in just a minute. Um, once you wake up a little bit, coffee hits you. Uh, if you. The apostleship is really important, so if you missed that one, just email me and I can send you my notes. Um, then building on the gift of apostleship, we looked at the gift of prophecy last week. And then today, we're going to pivot and look at the gift of tongues. So again, anytime we get into these, these what people typically call the miraculous gifts or the foundational gifts, it brings up kind of two views. We looked at those. The first view is called cessationism. And that view says that these, these miraculous gifts have ceased. Or as it says that the prophetic and the miraculous gifts described in Acts and 1 Corinthians continue... I, I can't see that. I did that last week too. 
I got like the micro font on my computer here. Um, <laughs> so that's continuationism, that the gifts continue. Um, and then cessationism is the other view that, the, that those gifts have ceased. So again, uh, you know our process is I don't really want to lead with systems. I want to lead with texts. And I want you to see firsthand what the Bible teaches about some of these gifts, how they functioned originally, what their purposes were, and then thinking about the implications of that today in this normative church age that we see. So I want to do the same with tongues today. And there's a lot of data, okay? So this is my forewarning. Um, Again, I can send you my notes if you want them. But really, it's not going to be as all over the Bible, I don't think, um, this morning. Because really, the, the two major places that you see the gift of tongues is in the book of Acts and in 1 Corinthians, specifically in chapters 12 through 14. All right, So really, just two places, the book of Acts, and then even there, there's only a few places that it comes up in Acts. And then 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. So those are, those are going to be our two kind of principal texts this morning. And we're going to do the same thing. We're going to ask and answer five questions about the gift of tongues. All right, five questions about the gift of tongues. And let's just jump right in here and ask the first question. Do we learn anything about tongues in the Old Testament? You know, kind of interesting. Let's, let's ask this question first because it's going to lead to what tongues actually is and kind of defining tongues. Do we learn anything about tongues in the Old Testament? Well, you can answer that question kind of one of two ways. Not really in the sense of tongues as it is in the New Testament, but there is some background info. So I'll say yes. The short answer is yes. So put simply, a tongue is another way of referring to a human language in the Old Testament. All right, a tongue is just another way, a normal way, of referring to a known human language in the Old Testament. The Old Testament tells us a number, or really two things that are relevant to our study. It tells us how these varied languages that we speak came to be, and it also serves as sort of this ominous sign for the nation of Israel. Okay? We're going to unpack both of those. It tells us kind of how these, how these languages came to be, these various tongues came to be. And then we'll see that it, it begins to serve as an ominous sign for the nation of Israel. So let's look at each of these. Multiple languages was a judgment on humanity. We all know the stories in the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. Multiple languages was a judgment on humanity. That's where they came from at the Tower of Babel. After the fall and after the flood, humanity united in its rebellion against the Creator. We all chose to work together to try to usurp God and and, and rival Him just like Adam did in the garden. This time, the Lord judged us by fragmenting us. He fragmented humanity. So people that were made in the image of God, we were virtually unstoppable in our unified rebellion and pride because we all spoke the same language. We could work together in our rebellion. And so he divided our tongues, he confused our languages, 
And the various languages put a severe damper on what we could accomplish. And it led to all the individual nations, including Israel and her enemies. Okay? So, Tower of Babel, that's where these languages came from. But after Babel, the Lord wasn't finished with his purpose for creation. It looks like you know, things had really gone haywire after the fall and the flood and then Babel. But out of those nations, God chose Abraham. And he created the nation of Israel from his descendants. And if Israel was faithful as God's son, as his faithful covenant partner, Israel would be used by God as a light to those cursed nations. The nations of Babel that kind of spread out after Babel. God would use Israel to bring the nations back to himself. But... If Israel was unfaithful, if she was an unfaithful covenant partner, then the Lord was going to punish the nation of Israel. And ironically, the Lord says he would use a foreign nation to do it. Okay? So in Deuteronomy, the presence of a foreign nation meant that judgment was coming. So we see that foreign languages mean judgment for Israel. It's a sign of judgment. If Israel is an unfaithful covenant partner, the Lord is going to bring a foreign nation against her, speaking in a, in a tongue, in a language that she does not understand. And that nation, that nation is going to subjugate the nation of Israel. You see this clearly in Deuteronomy 28 49. As we're writing feverishly, we gotta, we gotta, you gotta write faster. All right, Deuteronomy twenty-eight forty-nine. This is in the Torah and the law here, given by Moses to the nation. He says, "The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand." Again, this is in the context in Deuteronomy of covenant curses. If Israel is unfaithful, if Israel is disobedient. So this is what the Lord will do. He's going to bring this nation amongst many other things, he says in Deuteronomy 28. But this nation is going to bring this judgment. So in other words, if Israel continued to rebel, she would be conquered by a nation that spoke a language that she did not know. Now, centuries later or I should say centuries after that prediction in Deuteronomy, Israel is on the brink of this very judgment. The text from Deuteronomy is picked up and echoed again by Israel's prophet Isaiah in chapter 28. In this context, Israel is full of idols. She's full of wickedness. Actually, Isaiah opens by saying she is the disobedient son. Israel has been that unfaithful covenant partner. Chapter 1. And in chapter 28, her priests and her prophets are habitual drunkards. They're pictured as vomiting everywhere. So the leadership, people who are supposed to teach the nation, the priests and the prophets who are supposed to receive revelation from God, they're drunk. They're unfit for knowledge, Isaiah says. They can't receive revelation and teach the people the message of salvation. So instead, what's the Lord going to do? Well, listen to how the Lord's going to speak to Israel in Isaiah 28, 11, and 12. He says, For by a people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, 
the Lord will speak to this people. To whom, the people, to whom he has said, his covenant people, this is rest. Give rest to the weary and this repose. Yet they would not hear. So, the Lord will speak to them, but it will be concealed from them as a judgment. They won't understand it because it will be in a foreign language. They'll be broken, Isaiah goes on to say, they'll be broken, snared, and taken in captivity. Verse 13. So we see that if you're Israel, when a nation shows up at your doorstep and they're speaking in a language you don't know, that's not a good thing. Okay? It's a signal that judgment is coming, like we said back here. It's a signal that judgment is coming and that you need to repent quickly. So in the Old Testament, we've got a couple strands at play here. Tongues, foreign languages, remind us of our division as a human race because of our idolatry. It wasn't always this way in the beginning. But now it's also a specific signal for Israel that judgment is coming. So let's turn our attention now to the New Testament and see how the biblical authors pick up these strands and develop them. The first time we witness this tongues phenomenon, and arguably the most important text on tongues, is in Acts chapter 2. So go ahead and flip there. Now just to be clear... What we're talking about with tongues in the Old Testament is just we're just talking about languages. There's nothing miraculous about this, okay? But it's sort of a, the seedbed from which the rest of this is developed. As we move into Acts chapter 2, some pretty incredible things have transpired since that Isaiah 28 warning. Alright, since that period, Israel did fail. And she was overtaken by the Babylonians, people who spoke in a foreign tongue. But while Israel was in exile, the prophets predicted that God would raise up a new representative for the people, a new Israel, a new covenant partner, a new son, a Messiah who would stand in Israel's place. He would suffer for her sin and her transgressions against the covenant, and then he by his obedience, would usher in the age of, get this, God's Spirit. And God's Spirit would be poured out and the people would become obedient from the heart. This would be the age of the new covenant in contrast to the old. God would renew His people. He would renew the ones who would trust Him and He would extend salvation to the Gentiles but he would also judge those who did not believe. So as we head into Acts 2, this Messiah has come. And he has died, and he has already been raised to life. He has accomplished everything the people need, but he hasn't poured out his spirit yet. He hasn't quite inaugurated this new covenant, or at least he hasn't applied it to His people by giving them the promised Spirit. And not until this very moment in Acts chapter 2. So if you're there, let's, let's read these first four verses. Luke writes, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire, so resembling fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. What happened? And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So what's going on here? What there's so many things we gotta preach a series on this. But it, it's important that we don't miss the fact that in Acts 2, right here, that this is the moment of fulfillment. This is the moment where God pours his spirit out on his people. The moment that the prophets predicted, they looked forward to. It's reminiscent of when God filled the tabernacle and filled the temple with his presence. Now he's filling his greater temple, the church. And there's allusions to that, by the way, in, that, in what we just read. Whatever else is happening in this text, we don't want to miss the overarching fact that this is fulfillment. This is inauguration of the new covenant. Now Luke says that when the Spirit came, an odd thing happens. Pretty weird, okay? Something that resembled fire came down, and it rested on each one of them. And then they began to speak in other tongues. Okay? So what is that? Raises our next question. That's question number two. What is this gift of tongues? Well, again, if we're coming from the Old Testament in this word group, a tongue is still a human language. But here, as a gift from the Spirit, there's an added dynamic. Okay, so what is that? Well, the Spirit's inspiring this speech. He's inspiring someone to speak in a language that, that, they, that they didn't know before. And he speaks revelatory words in that different language. So this is clearly miraculous. The meaning is unknown to the speaker unless there is an interpreter. That's the idea of the gift of tongues. It's pretty wild stuff, Okay. Now, here's how I define this gift. I call it revelatory speech or inspired speech, if you prefer that. It's revelatory speech in a human language that's unknown to the speaker. It's revelatory speech, it's inspired from the Spirit. And it's an actual human language. And the one who's speaking does not know what it is they're uttering. The meaning of it. Because they don't know the language that they're speaking in. Because they've never learned it. Unless they have the gift of interpretation. Okay? So we see almost everything of this definition here, except that last part, that it's unknown to the speaker. Uh, We see that over in 1 Corinthians 14. But we see pretty much everything else right here in Acts 2. I'm going to add a few more things as we go, but initially, notice that tongues involve revelation from the Spirit. And we see this in verse 4. Tongues are inspired speech. It says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, And the result is they began to speak in other tongues. And now notice this. He doubles down here. As the Spirit gave them utterance. 
So the very utterances, meaning what they said, was given by the Spirit. Luke doubles down on that to make sure we see that this is coming from him. This is inspired speech. This is revelatory. Clearly, the Holy Spirit is the origin of this speech. They're speaking his words in a language they don't know and that they haven't learned. But the point is that they are the Spirit's words. They're his utterances. Now, this is why, this is, if you don't see that, it's going to be confusing in a minute because this is why Peter is going to interpret tongues as a form of prophecy. He's going to cite Joel 2 and say, what you're seeing right here, Israel, is this prediction that all of Israel is going to prophesy. That's because this tongues is revelatory. It's inspired speech, just like prophecy. We could say when it's interpreted, it becomes prophecy. The only difference between tongues and prophecy is tongues needs to be translated so people can understand what the Spirit is saying. So, it's revelatory speech. We're going to move quickly here. Next, notice that tongues are actual languages. They're not ecstatic babble. Okay? They're not meaningless gibberish or repetitive syllables or some sort of unknown heavenly tongue. And you see this, again, clearly in the, in the verses that we haven't read yet. Okay, so they're speaking in these tongues. Now, it says in verse 5, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation, that's key, under heaven. So the Jews who had, who had been dispersed, they're still living there, they made their homes in these other nations, they learned all the languages of the nations that were around them. And they're still there. Now, they had all come back to Jerusalem. And it says, verse 6, At this sound, the multitude, those Jews from other nations, came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? They're native to Canaan. They're not, they shouldn't know our languages. How is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Now he spells them out. Parthians and Medes. Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, and Egypt, and the parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. You making a point? <laughs> They're known languages. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So, They're clearly in human languages in this first instance that we see of tongues. And what's interesting about this is that an interpreter isn't needed. Why? Because they're speaking in the languages of the people. Jews from all over the empire are there, and they all speak different languages, and the languages of the disciples are speaking in their own native tongues. So it's clear the apostles are not speaking in some kind of special prayer language. They're speaking in actual human languages, which is what tongues means. The miracle, the gift, is that they did not learn the tongue. They didn't learn the language. I often prayed for the gift of tongues in seminary. (laughs) Joke, all right? Let's let the the air out. I had to learn other languages. 
It's been much easier just to have them downloaded. All right. But I wouldn't have understood them, I guess, so that wouldn't have been, that wouldn't have been helpful. Okay. While we're making these observations that, that tongues are human languages, let's add something else to these observations, okay? Remember that in the Old Testament, tongues was a warning for Israel. Remember how we saw that? Keep in mind here that the Jews receiving the sign of tongues had days earlier rejected and murdered God. Okay? It was the worst sin of Israel's history, way worse than the idolatry of their forefathers. So the presence of tongues should raise some eyebrows, right, based on that Old Testament precedent. But there's an interesting twist here. The ones speaking in foreign languages aren't a foreign nation. They're Jews that have been restored to God and the 120 disciples. And the languages here are languages that the unbelieving Jews can understand. It's almost as though these tongues are serving a dual purpose. Both to warn an idolatrous Israel, yeah, but also to point back to Babel and hint at its reversal. Hint that Babel is being, in a sense, reversed. It's almost like a foreshadowing that God is preparing to unify or reunify humanity again through the Messiah and the gift of His Spirit. And He's going to do it through including all flesh, all peoples in the new covenant through the work of the Messiah. So again, just hints toward this reality. Now, at this point, we might be tempted to think that God has given the Jews, the, the, the disciples, the, the apostles in the 120, we might be tempted to think that God's given them this gift to evangelize, right? To share the gospel with people of other languages. But I want you to notice that that's not the point, at least not directly. Instead, tongues are praise to God, not directly evangelistic. We might have to make this bad boy a two-parter. I don't know if we're going to be able to get through all this. Tongues are praise to God. They're not directly evangelistic. Notice what it is that the disciples are speaking when they speak in tongues. We don't find out until verse 11. And it's in the mouths of those unbelieving Jews that are there. They say, verse 11, about halfway through, We hear them telling in our own tongues, what? The mighty works of God. The mighty works of God. What is that? That's language for praise. That's language for declaring to God His mighty works back in thanksgiving, like we see in the Psalms and so many other places. They aren't directly evangelizing these Jews with the message of the gospel. They're praising God for the gift of His Spirit. And they're doing it in foreign tongues. Now, so if we stay here, don't turn anywhere, but just note this. The next time in Acts that tongues are explicitly mentioned, in chapter 10, we see the same thing. Okay? Later on in Acts, when the Gentiles receive the Spirit and they speak in tongues, it's also described as extolling God. Chapter 10, verse 46. 
extolling God. It says they spoke in tongues and extolled God. We'll look more at this in a, in a bit, but here I just want you to see that tongues, speech, is also described as praise. And finally, over in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul can sort of interchangeably refer to speaking in tongues as prayer, as praise, a song, as thanksgiving. And it's all kind of directed to God, 1 Corinthians 14. So it's consistent. And the point here is that we're sometimes tempted to think that tongues are for evangelism so that people will believe the gospel. But that's actually not the case, at least not directly. Notice back in Acts 2 that that even though the people understand the language, they don't get it. They're not converted by it. They don't understand what's going on. Tongues raises more questions for some of the people, and it causes other people to actually scoff. Look at this. Verse 12, back in Acts chapter 2. It says, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? They don't understand the significance. But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. They're just drunk. You know? So what these people need are not the sign of tongues by themselves. Tongues isn't saving anybody. Even even when they're interpreted. Or even when they can understand it. They need someone to help them understand the significance of the sign. And that's how these Jews get converted. Through preaching. They're told of their sin and that they stand in the crosshairs of God's wrath for crucifying Christ, what Christ has done, and the fact that what they're seeing and hearing is testimony that God has authenticated His Son and has poured His Spirit out, that the New Covenant's here. That's, just, that's Cliff Notes' version of Peter's sermon in Acts 2. So it's important to establish up front that the purpose of tongues aren't for evangelism. They're essentially here, praise to God. So that raises a third question. What are they for? What is the purpose of tongues if it's not for evangelism? At least not directly. Well, initially, Peter tells us in his sermon, he quotes Joel 2, which is one of the prophetic predictions of the day when God would pour out His Spirit in the New Covenant. And then he says, okay, what you've seen, this wild demonstration of tongues... This is a pointer to the fulfillment. That the fulfillment of the Spirit is here. That it's it's been brought in through the Messiah, through Jesus of Nazareth. Or we could say it like this. It is a dramatic evidence of the inauguration of the New Covenant. It's a dramatic evidence, meaning it's kind of undeniable that something weird is going on, right? It's dramatic evidence that God has inaugurated, He's brought, He's, he's, he's broken open this period of the New Covenant right now in fulfillment of Joel 2. I'll give you a chance to write that down. It's a dramatic evidence of the inauguration of the New Covenant. Look with me in Acts 2, beginning of verse 14. So right after they, they're after asking these questions, what does this mean? And the field new wine. But Peter, verse 14, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. 
men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Quote, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters, here it is, shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male and servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and here it is, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. He's already done some of that back at the crucifixion. There's more to come. The sun shall be turned to darkness. That in particular was at the the crucifixion. The moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass in this period that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter's saying, that's now. That's begun. And the tongues are an evidence. They're a pointer to that. It's dramatic evidence of the inauguration of the new covenant. Tongues signals the last days. They signal that God has poured out His Spirit, just like Joel predicted. They signal that this decisive event in salvation history has occurred. That we're now in the period of the new covenant. And in a way, you could say this event is part of the package of what Christ accomplished for His people. So not only did He live for us, check. Not only did He die in our place, check. Not only was He raised on the third day, check. Not only did He ascend into heaven, check. But that was all for this moment. So He could pour out His Spirit on His people, making us obedient from the heart. So that He could inaugurate the new covenant. Peter connects these events in his sermon on down. Notice just for our sake, at the kind of conclusion he says, verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, that's the ascension, that's kind of the last, like second to last event. Here's the last one. Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. That these, that these events of the crucifixion, the, the resurrection, the ascension, and the outpouring of the Spirit, that they all belong together is a crucial observation. Why? Because it shows us that Pentecost is not something normative. It's not something we should expect every single time someone gets saved. Lots of people get saved in Acts without speaking in tongues. This event was a foundational moment as the church was birthed. But you might ask, well, doesn't tongues happen in other places in Acts? Well, they do. And since tongues are a dramatic evidence of the new covenant, evidence of the outpouring of the Spirit, it stands to reason that any time there's a controversy about who is in the new covenant, that tongues would serve as a confirmation. Tracking? Anytime there's a controversy, anytime the gospel is going to penetrate into new territory in terms of ethnicity or people groups, I'll explain that in a minute, you see that God grants authentication of this new breakthrough. They help us see with a visible sign who God has given His Spirit to in those controversial moments. 
And Luke has already given us a hint back in chapter 1 of when to expect it. He's given us a hint that the foundation of this new covenant people would be laid in stages and it would happen progressively as the gospel went from Jews to Gentile. So look with me just quickly at those stages of development in Acts chapter 1. Flip back one page or, or wherever in Acts 1. This is Jesus speaking to His disciples. He says, verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses of these things, like we just saw with Peter. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, stage 1, in all Judea and Samaria, stage 2, and to the end of the earth, stage 3. Jerusalem, which we just saw at Pentecost, stage 1, Judea and Samaria, stage 2, and to the end of the earth, stage 3. So let's think about these developments among the Jews. We've seen it happen already in Jerusalem with tongues as a signal at Pentecost. Over the next few chapters, the gospel continues to spread in the city, and Luke summarizes the spread over in chapter 6, verse 7. Kind of brings this phase 1 to a close. Verse six, or chapter 6, verse 7. It says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly, here it is, in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So Luke's saying, signal, phase one, done. You had tongues at the beginning, authenticating the gospel of the Jews. All the way through chapter 6, halfway through chapter 6, signal that this, hey, the gospel is spreading in Jerusalem, phase one. Now, after the story of Stephen, which is a transitional story, and his murder by the Jewish rebels there, those ones that are hardening themselves, you know, they're not heeding the sign, right? They're hardening themselves. After that, notice what happens in chapter 8. I'll go over to chapter 8, verse 1. Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. It's phase two. Stage two of the development. And in this very chapter, we see a new group receive the spirit, a spirit, a controversial group, the Samaritans, the half Jews. Okay? These are not, there's a, I mean, this, this is really, really interesting. Okay? I can't go into the details here. So we, we would just say it's among the Samaritans. They were ethnic descendants of the northern kingdom who had intermarried in the time of the exile. And they had set up their own temple. They had their own rival worship system. So it was clear that they needed to be clearly brought in in submission to Jerusalem, the Davidic king, and to be reunited with Judea and with Israel proper. Now, tongues is not mentioned here explicitly. You're thinking, why are you bringing it up, Clay? But it's clear that there was some visit, and I think there's a reason for that, so if you want to know that, I'll tell you later. Okay? A little teaser. But it's clear that there was some visible sign. Okay? So, basically, Philip goes there, preaches the gospel, they're converted, and yet they're like, 
We didn't receive the Spirit. It's bizarre. It's like the only time this happens. And it's like, what's going on? So they send for the, they send for the Jews, the, the apostles, the twelve, from Jerusalem. They come down, and they lay their hands on these Samaritans, and that's when the Spirit indwells them. And it was evident. Something happened that was everybody was able to see it. Okay? So that's why I'm inferring, and so do most everybody else, infer that tongues happened here. Tongues isn't mentioned, but it's clear that there was some visible sign when the Spirit was given through the apostles. And it was most likely the sign of tongues. So again, that means you have confirmation of something that could be controversial. The the Samaritans are also fully part of the people of God. They are indwelled by His Spirit, just like the Jews. And once the gospel permeates Judea and Samaria, in chapters 8 and 9, we're ready for stage 3. Okay? So again, just like we would expect, at the middle of chapter 9, verse 31, Luke rounds this off. He says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, i.e. stage 2, the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had, been, had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. All right, stage 2, check. Now it's time for stage 3, the inclusion of the Gentiles. So we would say we see this among the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius' conversion is the next time we see this tongues phenomenon. And just jot that reference down and, and read it later. But of all the groups, of all the stages in Acts, this one is the most controversial. God makes clear through the gift of tongues and the timing of it, how it came, that the Gentiles have also received God's Spirit, which means they too, we too I should say, are co-heirs along with Israel. The Spirit was granted to the, Jew, to the Gentiles by faith. It was granted to them apart from the law, which indicates that the Gentiles are not required to submit to the Mosaic law. That's the whole point of this in Acts. And all I want to do here is just point out that God confirms the addition of Gentiles to the new covenant people of God through the sign of tongues. Undeniable. More Gentiles get saved later in Acts, but they don't speak in tongues. This is part of the foundation laying of the church, of this new temple. He's added the Jews, restored them. He's brought Samaria back in the fold. And now he's extending out. It's too light a thing for the Messiah just to restore Israel back to himself. He's also going to restore the Gentiles. So that's what you see happening. Now, if you know Acts, it's kind of a weird example of tongues. And the last one, it's in chapter 19. This is what I call a bonus. All right? Bonus tongues. Because we're so, we're so not used to this. I've got to get some water. It's, it's kind of an interesting moment here in the early church. And it's among John's disciples, that's John the Baptist, it's among his disciples in Antioch. I'm not Antioch, in Ephesus, excuse me. And that's over in chapter 19. You see this interesting story. I'll just summarize it for you. Basically, Paul finds his way to Antioch in one of his missionary journeys. I keep saying Antioch. To Ephesus in one of his missionary journeys. And he encounters some people there 
who have not yet received the Spirit. They're disciples of John. And so he interacts with these guys and they're like, hey, have you, have you received the Spirit? And they're like, we didn't know that the Spirit's been poured out yet. And he's like, oh, that's already happened way back then. And they're like, oh, okay. So then Paul lays his hands on them. They receive Jesus and he lays his hand on them and they receive the Spirit. And, they, and it says they speak in tongues and they prophesy. And it says, interestingly, that there was 12 men that did that in Ephesus. Super interesting detail. Can't go into it. That's teaser number two. But what do we make of this? Okay, This shows us two things. It shows us that John's disciples, and John was a big deal. John the Baptist was a huge deal. That all his disciples must submit to Jesus' baptism. After the ascension of Christ and after the Spirit's been poured out, there's no, there's no room for kind of another, another group. They've got to come under and come into submitting to Jesus and his baptism. They're kind of living in a time warp, so to speak. And it's like, okay, time to, time to come back under. So it shows us that. But even more, what this shows us is it authenticates Paul. It shows us how he's on the same level as Peter. Again, in, in Acts, that's one of Luke's purposes, is he's, he presents Paul as mirroring a lot of the same things that happened with Peter. And he does that to show that Paul is not some second-rate apostle. He's called by the Lord, just like Peter in the Twelve. And he's on the same level. We talked about that at length in the apostleship sermon. But it shows us that the, Spirit is, the Spirit's granted through the laying on of, of Paul's hands, just like Peter with the Samaritans. And the whole story drives this point home, that Paul is on equal ground with the with Peter. So I want you to know that. You know, as we're kind of going in, it's not like there's this, this example of tongues that's hanging out here that doesn't make any sense. It fits with the overarching purpose of this sort of dramatic evidence of the inauguration of the new covenant, and in this case, for the disciples of John. So that is one aspect of the purpose of tongues. It functions positively as a dramatic evidence of the establishment of the new covenant. But there's also more to tongues. There's a negative aspect of this sign. It functions simultaneously with the positive aspect. And we see this explicitly over in 1 Corinthians 14. And we could say it like this. It's a sign of judgment for unbelievers. It's a sign of judgment for unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 14, 20. And again, Acts illustrates this with the rejection of the Jews. But here's, here's what he says in, in here's what Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 20. He says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In other words, have this mature perspective of tongues. Okay? In the law, it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Heard that before? It's Isaiah 28. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, or against unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, 
and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the seekers of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God really is among you. So, he quotes Isaiah 28, 11 and 12, the text we looked at earlier, and it's kind of keeping in with, with the warning aspect of tongues. But this, this text helps us know, a bit, well, it helps to know a bit about the background of what was happening in Corinth. It's clear that this church had elevated tongues, thinking that, that it was the most spiritual gift of the bunch, and that they probably thought the most mature among them had the gift of tongues, and everybody else was second rate. They were obsessed over speaking in tongues. And they probably bordered on this sort of self-absorbed charismania, if you want to call it that, you know, in the Corinthian church. So what Paul's doing in this whole section in 12 through 14 is he's trying to bring tongues down to earth. He's trying to say, hey, you've got to put it in its right place. He's trying to put tongues in their place. He wants to remind them that tongues function essentially to condemn unbelievers. They're a sign of judgment to them, he says. They can't understand the message. And as a result, they're going to think the church is out of its mind if everybody's just in this frenzied state speaking in tongues. Instead, Paul says when it comes to the revelation, when it comes to these revelatory gifts, he says prophecy is preferred. Why? Because they can understand it. They understand what's being said, and they're convicted. They're brought to repentance. And so he says tongues then functions as a sign of judgment for unbelievers. And he's implying here, that's not what we want. We want unbelievers to know the gospel. We want them to hear the truth and come to, come to repentance and faith. And this is true of unbelievers generally, but specifically it's true of unbelieving Israel. And this is illustrated throughout Acts as Israel persists in unbelief. So the tongues function as a sign of coming judgment, a judgment that would be poured out on them in A.D. 70. Okay? In A.D. 70... Emperor comes in and demolishes Jerusalem. It was horrific. Destroys the temple, all in the predictions of what Christ said, as a rejection, as a punishment for the rejection of their Messiah. So this, this hardening, this, this sign of tongues was pointing toward AD 70 and this judgment that was coming. So tongues are both of these, they, they're, it's positive in the one sense of it's, it's pointed to the inauguration of the new covenant, but it, at the same time, the back end of it, it's a negative sign of those who are continuing to reject the Messiah. It's a sign of judgment, specifically to Israel. And then finally, it's a means of revelation to the church, if it's interpreted. It's a means of revelation to the church, if and only if, it is interpreted. So this makes sense. I'm just going to, I'm not going to elaborate this one. I think it's pretty self-evident. Remember, tongues is a form of prophecy because it's revelatory speech. So that means if it's interpreted in the church, it becomes an edifying word from God to the congregation. And that's what you see in 1 Corinthians 14. Man, let me blitz through this really quick. Can I have like three more minutes so we don't have to do part two? Okay, great. Yeah, people are like, yes, please, please, spare us next week. 
All right, number four. So if that's the case, then how does Paul regulate their practice in the church? With everything that Paul says in these chapters, especially him trying to bring tongues back down to earth, it might seem like Paul is anti-tongues in the church. But he's not. At least not in this formative period when this revelation is still being given. He doesn't want the Corinthians to forbid tongues because he knows that while the foundation is being laid, God is still speaking to his people through tongues, even if it's becoming rarer as the gospel progresses. So what are some of the ground rules Paul tells us in um, this chapter 14? He says there must be an interpreter present. So if you're going to speak in a tongue, is, is, well, I'm sorry, I, I got that in the wrong order, didn't I? It's limited to three people per Sunday. Okay, and only three. Notice he says, if any speak in a tongue, verse 27, let there be only two or at most three. Hear the language? At most, there's a cap on this. At most, there's going to be three. Okay, so it's limited to three per Sunday at most. Next, it's one at a time, guys. One at a time, Paul says. He says that each in turn... Meaning, not everybody speaking at the same time. Okay, One person speaking in a tongue at a time. And, what does he say? Next, interpretation must be given. He says, and let someone interpret. End of verse 27. That's why it's got to be edifying to the church. Because the church needs to know. Otherwise, be quiet. That's what he says. Put a lid on it. Don't say anything. Okay? But if there is no one, verse 28, to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Okay, so if you want to speak in tongues, speak to yourself. Okay? Speak to God. You don't understand what you're saying anyway. Okay? So just keep it to yourself. Don't, don't speak to the church, because that's distracting, that's not edifying. So, speaking of practicing tongues, that leads us to our fifth and final question here. Do tongues exist today? Right? So, with that blitz, it's worth saying at the outset that everything we just observed rules out about 99% of tongues speaking in the church today. Right? Almost no one speaks in any known or previously unlearned language. Instead, it's mostly some form of kind of syllabification. Or it's, instead, it's, it's a, or they might call it a heavenly language of praise. Similarly, there are rarely interpreters in the church to make sense of what's being said, which violates what Paul commands here. Usually, a bunch of people are speaking at the same time. Sometimes, certain movements will insist that we must experience speaking in tongues if we want assurance, and they imply that this is the normal and should be the normal experience of all Christians. which clearly flies in the face of everything we've seen. And again, if we simply apply what the Bible says, it rules out almost all of what's commonly called tongues today. But beyond that, okay, I think the data definitely points toward the cessation of tongues today for at least three major reasons. Again, you hear my language. I'm saying it points toward this. I don't have a text. I don't have a chapter and verse to point to, but I think it points toward it. Here's why. First, that initial function of tongues as part of the foundation of the church and the inauguration of the New Covenant era is well established. Meaning that positive sign, that's well established. We know who's in. You know? 
Gentiles, Samaritans, Jews. Once it was confirmed that Christ had ascended and the Spirit had been poured out, especially to the Gentiles, it is crystal clear who was included in this new covenant and how, by faith. Second, it's also crystal clear who is excluded. It's clear that unbelievers, and in particular, unbelieving Israel, is under divine judgment. And that's exemplified by the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And it's persisted even until today. Tongues are no longer needed to testify to this reality. Additionally, we have the clear apostolic word that Israel is under a partial hardening. Romans 11. Israel's under a partial hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Romans 11.25. So we have a an apostolic, revealed, inscripturated word that that's the case. Israel, we see in their unbelief, have been hardened according to the divine will of God in his mystery. So again, therefore, don't need tongues to keep telling us that, to reveal that. Finally, it seems evident to me that the Lord no longer needs to give supplemental revelation to his people because the foundation has been laid. Since tongues is essentially just prophecy when it is interpreted, Everything we said last week about prophecy, in its cessation, it applies to tongues today. It applies here in this case. So, we got through it. Great. Um, I know we've been grinding through these gifts, but I want you to have data. Okay? I want you to have data because there's so much going around that's just flying in the face of what we see in the text if we're just patient with it. And I know there's probably a lot of unanswered questions. Maybe at some point we'll just do a raw Q&A. You can try to grill me with as many as you want, um, and then I'll just punt on whatever I can't answer, because these are tough subjects. But I hope this has been helpful. Um, we've got one more kind of in the miraculous category, the gifts uh, the, of uh, the miracles, and then we're going to be kind of on to the normative gifts and kind of looking for those in our lives and, and trying, to, trying to think those things through, okay?